companies announcing that they are no longer requiring college degrees, I think is a way of recognizing that maybe it's worth it to look beyond the resume at what is the person's proven track record? What is their work ethic? Um, Have they worked before? Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Otsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I am your host, Tracy Otsuka. Thank you so much for joining me here for episode number 236 of ADHD for Smartass Women. You know that my purpose is always to show you who you are and then inspire you to be it. In the thousands of ADHD women that I've had the privilege of meeting, I have never met a one that wasn't truly brilliant at something. Not one. Get down, Teddy. My dog. So for all of these reasons, I am just delighted to introduce you to Irina Smith. Irina Smith is the author of the recently released memoir, The Golden Ticket, A Life in College Admissions. Look at this. Look at this is how I read without like the little tabs of flags. The Golden Ticket, A Life in College Admissions Essay. She emigrated from the former Soviet Union with her parents when she was nine. And in spite of claiming that she would never learn English, she received a BA in English and a PhD in comparative literature from UCLA. After teaching college-level literature and composition and serving as an admissions officer at Stanford, she opened a private college counseling practice in which she helps high school students tell their best stories. Irina has a love-hate relationship with Wordle, She's an advocate of imperfect but earnest parenting, omnivorous reading, and the Oxford comma. Irina, welcome. Did I get all of that right? Tracy, you absolutely did. And thank you so much for that great intro. Well, yeah. (laughs) So, you know, on this podcast, I always want to talk about my guest's ADHD diagnoses first. So we'll definitely go there in a minute. But before we do that, I just had to let you know how beautifully written The Golden Ticket was. It was the easiest read I've had in I don't even know how long, and that is because of your brilliance around words. I mean, you are an incredible storyteller. Thank you. 
I wanted to lead with that because I'm afraid that once I got going, I would forget to tell you that. Well, this is what every writer lives for, I think, is words like yours. So thank you so much. Oh, well, it's it's so true. Like I'm not, you know, it's the easiest thing for me to say. So I am curious what the circumstances were around your diagnoses, because as you know, that's what we talk about here, ADHD in women. So my diagnosis is actually pretty recent. I was diagnosed in October of 2022, so it has not even been a year. I suspected that I had it for probably the past five or so years as each of my children was grappling with symptoms that looked increasingly like stuff I was dealing with. And I think up until my late 40s, I was pretty good at dealing and I guess being a functional person with ADHD, meaning that I would fall into situations that were good for my ADHD. So I wrote for the student newspaper in college. I loved the quarter system at UCLA because it was only 10 weeks long. And so it would be over like that. And I didn't have to be bored in a class if it was boring. And I didn't have to never take a class again if it was great. I could take like three more with that professor. And then the older I got and the more I had to structure my own time, the more I found myself struggling. So I eventually ended up going through a very labyrinthine process to get diagnosed. So this was last year, though. Yep. So talk to me about Arena as a child. What did she look like? Not physically, although you can add that, but, you know, what was she like? So as a child, um, little Irina was very creative and had somewhat weird projects. Occasionally, I would, for example, pick up earthworms that had been squashed and bring them back to our apartment and try to bandage them and make them better. And invariably, they died. I think that made my parents for a minute hope that I would be a doctor, which I don't think was ever in the cards. I loved reading. I could get lost in a book for hours. I liked to draw. And I didn't love to sit still. And then the other thing that is still very true, and I have no idea if that's an ADHD thing or just an Irina thing, I can't stand wearing shoes. Like I'm famous for, in any circumstances, kicking my shoes off and sort of hiding my bare feet under a desk or wherever. And that's been the case ever since I was little. So you were definitely not one of those teenagers, young women or women that walk around in these ridiculous high heels. You know, I did have a phase where I did walk around in ridiculous high heels. But you talk about it here, right? No, I am five foot nothing. Um, When I was younger, I was maybe just shy of five foot one. Um, And so I felt it very important to at least add a few inches to my height until I realized it was really stupid and painful. And I don't think I was going to fool anybody with my increased stature. A few little, exactly. Exactly. I can I can relate, Irina. So were you a difficult child or were you easygoing? I think I was fairly easygoing. Um, my parents would argue with that. But then after I had my own, what my mom once called rampageous children, I think they realized just how easy I was in that I was generally pretty compliant. Uh-huh. If I didn't like something that I had to do, I would find sneaky ways to get around it. But I wasn't confrontational. I was a people pleaser. 
I don't think I was really, I mean, my mom may beg to differ, but I think I was more a sneaky, snarky teenager and not like an acting out teenager. Okay. So once you knew it was ADHD and you had the benefit of hindsight, what are some of the symptoms that you now like look back on and or maybe you always wondered about them and you're like, oh my gosh, that is totally ADHD. And before you answer that question, yes, hypersensitivities is definitely one of the traits, Mm -hmm. right, of ADHD. So it makes sense to me that what you were talking about as far as you can't stand to wear shoes. Yeah. So I think that was really the only hypersensitivity. Um, But the traits that made sense with the diagnosis is on what I would say the, the negative side or the difficult side procrastination, time blindness, um, operating on the optimistic assumption that even though I have to be somewhere that takes 10 minutes to get to, if I leave two minutes before I'm supposed to be there, somehow I am magically going to materialize at that place. And the funny thing is my daughter is that, but magnified and it infuriates me in her. But for me, I'm just like, oh, I'm quirkily, charmingly late. So um, definitely the time blindness, definitely working well under pressure. Give me a timeline or a deadline that I have built-in anxiety about, and I am a ringer at doing things just to that deadline, but give me like a year or three months to complete a project, and I'll just wait until about 12 hours before it's due. Okay. So- I find it so funny because I share this with you completely. I can be late, but heaven forbid. However, I am only late for personal social kind of stuff. I am very on the ball for business, right? So it shows that if there's enough stress and anxiety, I'll get there. But with my family, you know, they always get the best of us, don't they? Exactly. So I can be late, but heaven forbid if anybody else is even five minutes late and I have to wait, right? Right. And you're like, how dare you disrespect my time? Oh, just so rude. Exactly. But then I, yeah, it comes back to me. (laughs) So, and I've gotten so much better, so much better about that over the years. But I still think about some of the times where like, I would literally leave friends waiting for 45 minutes (laughs) and- I would be driving like a bat out of hell and so stressed out about the fact that I was late. Like it felt so bad. Mm -hmm. And then I would get there and they'd be upset at me. And I still feel guilty about that. Yeah. And the beauty of that is that every time it happens, you're driving like a bat out of hell thinking, I am never doing this again. This is terrible. I am ruining my life. I could get into an accident. My friends are going to be furious. And then the next time you do it all over again. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so let's talk about your book. After reading it, and my book is in copy editing right now, so I'm almost finished. And I have to tell you, it was the hardest thing that I've ever done. I know our listeners hear me, you know, complain about it all the time. But after reading your book, I was literally thinking, uh, maybe I should start over. And you know what I loved so much were the stories. Again, you are just such a good storyteller. And so I want to know like the circumstances around writing, like how long did it take you to write it? What was the process? Was this fun for you? So I was hoping you would ask that because it's such a great both writing story and ADHD story. 
It took me 20 years, give or take, and one weekend to write the book. And I say that- Wait, 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 wait. Say that again? 20 years and one weekend. Okay, what does that look like? Have you been writing all the chapters all along? No. Um, So let me explain what this was like, because it's an insane process and really highlights both the good and the bad parts of ADHD. So I started writing personal essays roughly- around the time that my oldest son was diagnosed with autism. So this would have been 97. And at almost the same time, I came across the, I think it was the first or second story collection of David Sedaris, who is an amazing essayist who writes about his quirky Greek family and having OCD and ADHD too, for all we know. And I remember it was such a revelation to me. I was like, I could do that. I could totally write in my own, obviously not Greek and gay, but aggrieved Russian Jewish neurotic middle-aged person voice. And so I started writing essays mostly about what we were going through with our son. And then it brought up stuff about my childhood and coming here from the former Soviet Union, because one of the things that... I found was an interesting connection is our son was learning language like it was his second language. He was not acquiring spoken language naturally. And so we had to break it down for him and teach it to him in this really sort of foundational way, like, you know, labeling and then putting words together and how to ask questions because he actually didn't know how to ask questions. He would answer them, but he couldn't ask them. And it made me remember how I learned English, which happened when I was nine years old and my parents and I came here from the Soviet Union. And our hope was, well, I'm fluent in English now. I didn't learn it the conventional way, but I can speak it and nobody has to know how I learned it. And so I was kind of fascinated by that overlap that, you know, I had been English as a second language My son was also, in spite of being a native speaker, English as a second language learner. And then life got in the way and we had two more children and I was working and I would write bits and pieces and occasionally they would be published somewhere. And then eventually I accrued a critical mass of stories that I wasn't entirely sure what to do with other than I had a vague idea that I wanted them to be a book. So I asked a friend of mine who knows literally everybody like off the cuff in May of 2020, hey, do you know somebody who's a literary agent? Because I think somebody who is not me should maybe take a look at this. And as it happened, she was like, sure, let me introduce you to my friend Nikki. So she introduced me to this woman who is a legit literary agent. And Nikki quickly (laughs) said, do you have a book proposal? And I said, what what proposal while Googling it with one hand. And she said, oh, never mind, just send me the manuscript, which I had over-optimistically said I had completed. And I said, oh, oh, the manuscript. Yes, which I totally have. But you know how it's Friday? Can I have the weekend to just put some finishing touches on it maybe? Um, and I'll get it to you by Monday. And she was like, yeah, sure, that's fine. And so I literally spent 72 hours trying to figure out what was my through line because it was really this disorganized collection of stuff. And after 72 hours of frenetic, pretty much nonstop work, I had something that when I showed it to my husband, he looked at me in astonishment and said, oh, you made a book. And I was like, I think I did. 
And so I sent it off to Nikki. She really liked it. Um, Very long story short, it was rejected 70 plus times by traditional publishers and finally came out with She Writes Press, which is a phenomenal um, hybrid publisher for and by women authors. There's been a lot of revision between that weekend and now, um, but it really was 20 years in one weekend because nothing focuses the mind like panic, as you know. That is such a great story. And I swear to you, this is an ADHD thing because I had a really similar experience where I didn't know what a book proposal was. So I had to hire someone to help me put one together. But I kept ghosting her because once we got to the chapter summaries, I can't really write a chapter summary. I have to write the chapter first. And so I just couldn't get it done. And finally, she said, OK, we're going to meet. And I sit there in front of Zoom with her and she says, we're querying agents. And I'm like, what do you mean we're querying agents? My book proposal, like my chapter summaries, they're like not done. She's like, we're doing this. And so she was like, who is your favorite agent? And I gave her a name. She sticks it into this this email she had already created because I'm like, I don't have an email. How am I going to who am I querying? Mm -hmm. She finds the woman's, you know, email information, whatever, and um, sends it to me. I had to plug in the woman's name who I was querying and she made me send it. And as we're sitting there then working on her, the book proposal, the agent gets back to me. This was 17 minutes. Oh my and God. Like, she's like, I would, and it turns out she was neurodivergent, right? So she was really interested in the subject, which is I think why I liked her. And I had followed her on, she has a podcast. And it was so funny because the woman who was helping me with the book proposal also has ADHD. And she somehow realized that if I just give her a real important deadline, she'll get it together. So I had to do the same thing. But I said, well, we're almost done with it. I'll, I'll send it to you in about two weeks. And so within two weeks, I had it done. I could not have done it. I mean, you did the whole book in a weekend, right? 20 hours. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, I technically, it wasn't the whole book. I had most of the material, but I had to figure out how do I put it together? What's the through line? What am I trying to do? And that was, I think, impossible for me until I had a hard deadline. For the record, I wrote my dissertation exactly the same way. I got a dissertation year fellowship, which gave me essentially a stipend, uh, paid my registration fees and gave me a stipend to write for a year. And then it would run out after a year. And if I didn't file my dissertation by the deadline, I would have to pay filing fees and registration fees, which were several thousand dollars. And of course, this all happened while I was pregnant with my oldest son. And I didn't feel like writing when I was pregnant because I figured I would just put it off until I had the baby. Everybody knows babies sleep for 20 hours a day. And I would just type any type on my computer while my little angel was sleeping in his crib. As it turns out, babies sleep maybe 20 hours a week if you're lucky. And so after about two or three months of just total panic, um, I ended up putting Jordan, our oldest son, in, um, pre- not preschool, it, there was like an infant room at Stanford where my husband was uh, doing his residency. And I wrote the entire dissertation in three months because I had to. And my husband, of course, very unhelpfully said to me, think what would have happened if you had been writing like this the entire time. <laughs> I said, shut up, David, because that's not helpful. <laughs> Really? So 
writing this book about these kids who are at the top echelon of everything, right? And then juxtaposing this against your kids who are clearly equally as brilliant, maybe even more so, but you're basically trying to make sure that they're mentally healthy. I can't even imagine how difficult this must have been. It was a struggle, to put it mildly. And I think part of it is that, um, and I find this to be a great irony that I studied comparative literature in grad school, because you compare books, but of course, as every parent knows, you also compare your children to other people's children. Everybody does. Anybody who says that they don't is a liar. And it was such a disconnect for me that I was working with students who seemed to have it so easy until I realized in the course of my work that nothing is easy really for anybody. We're all wrestling with something. But it was such a stark disconnect because it felt to me like my husband and I were trying to do something really elemental, which is keep our children mentally healthy and in some very extreme cases to keep them alive. And yet I was working with students and often their families for whom the worst possible outcome in the world, the worst was if their child couldn't get into Dartmouth and instead had to, oh no, go to UC Berkeley or, oh no, you know, end up at Davis in engineering. Terrible, terrible. And, you know, it's really hard to reconcile that with what was going on at home. And it's really hard to distance yourself from it because even though we never put that kind of pressure on our kids. It's in the water. They experience it every day at school. It's in our community. It's very, very hard to avoid. So I grew up in Burlingame and Hillsborough, which isn't far from Palo Alto. So I was in Palo Alto all the time. And when my daughter was born, we, my parents lived in Hillsborough. And so we lived a couple blocks from them. And we really, I really wanted to live in Palo Alto. And, you know, we had spent, you know, before we had kids, we had spent time, um, we had a house in Petaluma, which was, you know, Sonoma County, way far from Palo Alto in, in, in every respect. It's, it's a little capital of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Egg basket. And I remember the whole time, you know, we were, you know, my kids were going through schools. My husband and I would talk about, oh, we should have just bought a house in Palo Alto. We wouldn't have to pay for private schools. We, you know, we'd be around people that felt more like us, you know, blah, blah, blah. After reading your book, I am so happy that we stayed up in our little country town with all kinds of, you know, different people. And granted, it wasn't perfect, but I can't imagine. And I have a little bit of it. I mean, I know a little bit of it because my daughter ended up going to a school in Marin that is, you know, one of these top 32 um, high schools. And, you know, part of it was she was commuting so far every day, but just the amount of schoolwork and I think the pressure to perform and, you know, to be in that, because you've got to be in that top 10%, right? To end up going anywhere. Exactly. I think she would have much better, it would have been much better for her to just stay in our community and go to a go to the public school. Our public school is just fine. And so where was I going with this? Just that I'm just so glad that we chose not to do that because I realize now it was probably more for me 
and what I thought we would be able to achieve for my kids. So, you know, we would have been part of the problem. Exactly. Well, and I don't think anybody moves to Palo Alto intending to be part of the problem or intending to harm their kids. But I think that in my and my husband's case, it was exactly what you just said, wanting to see yourself reflected where you live, right? We were these bright, successful, accomplished people. He was doing his residency at Stanford. I was a lecturer at Stanford before I went into admissions and then private college counseling. And as a result, it felt to us like we're in a place where we would have done super well. And so it stands to reason that our kids would do super well because aren't your kids supposed to be mini use? And then it turns out one after another, that the excellent Palo Alto schools, which are really in many respects quite good, are not excellent for everybody. They're actually quite harmful for many more kids than we hear about because the number of people who have reached out to me, both in Palo Alto and beyond Palo Alto, who have invisibly been dealing with many of the same challenges is staggering. But those are the kids who are not written about in the Palo Alto Weekly. Those are not the kids who the school celebrates for their athletic or artistic or STEM or other achievements. Those are the kids who are quietly struggling, but because they're not a huge problem, they just kind of fall through the cracks. Absolutely. It's it's that middle range child, right? That is very, very bright and they're bored in the school system, but they're not, they don't do poorly enough, right? They're not flunking out. They're not a huge problem. And so they just totally fall through the cracks, do not live to their potential at all, at least in the school system. Exactly. And I mean, that was my son. It was, you know, my daughter did just fine, but my son, and, and you know, he just finished his junior year at NYU. He's going to be a senior. And the other day he called me and he said, mom, if I wasn't a senior, I would drop out of college. I'm like, wow. And, you know, this is the most ridiculously expensive school. You know, I I mean, the whole thing just makes me angry. And it's no better because it costs so much. His comment was, I have not taken one class, not one class where I thought I want to take more classes in this. I am passionate about this. I want to stay up all day learning more about this. He's like, I'm just bored and I do what I need to do to get through. And he gets pretty good grades, but he's not like for him to say, if I was not going into my senior year, I would drop out. It's like, what are we doing to our kids? He's so not engaged, right? And he's learned He's taking over the summer, he's doing some sort of program. He's really interested in banking and he's doing some sort of program to get the certification that I guess most kids don't have coming out of college. It's something you get when you're in the workplace and he's doing it himself at his own pace, which is a lot faster than they recommend. And he's like, I realize I learn so much better when I teach myself. I don't learn when I'm forced to be at a lecture hall at a certain time and I'm forced to study these certain things, you know, for an exam that's coming up in, in a week or whatever. I'm just like, what are we doing with our education system? Yeah. What is it for? And, you know, the the question that I keep coming back to is, and this is partly why I called the book The Golden Ticket, is, you know, it's considered such a prize. It's considered such a win, when you get into one of the top 10 or the top 20. But then what do you win when you win? 
Do you know what I mean? Like what, what exactly is that? Look, if you've been listening for a while, I bet you're starting to see your strengths and dare I say brilliance. So can you imagine what it would be like to work with me? Look, we love the sparkly, right? And the new. So sometimes it can feel like we're all over the place. ADHD women often tell me, I'm interested in so much. Which of the many things that I'm interested in is the one that I should pursue? Well, we have interest-driven brains, right? And hyper-focus. So if we can learn more about who we really are and what's truly important to us, we'll know exactly what we should be hyper-focusing on. And then the sky's the limit. And that's exactly what we do in our six-week program, Your ADHD Brain is A-OK. It includes live coaching with me and a private community of women just like you. And our July and September cohort are open right now. Now, if you go to the website, you'll see the price is $11.94, but I don't want you to buy it at that price. So use the podcast code PODCASTSASS to get $500 off the program just for being a podcast listener. I would love to have you join us. You can find out more at spyhappy.me forward slash A-OK. That's spyhappy.me forward slash A-OK. So now let's get on to our regular programming. What does it really mean? I mean, someone said, what's the movie, um, The Incredibles and The Incredible Boy? He says, you know, what do you do when everybody's incredible? Because when everybody's incredible, then nobody is incredible, right? Exactly. And so I have come, because I was one of those Palo Alto parents starting out, right? And part of it was because my daughter was always at the top of the class. And I would look at these other families, especially the families of boys. She was at a, um, a Catholic school. And I would literally think, why don't you guys get your family together? Like I really thought, it was my husband. It was me. This was why our kids were doing so or my daughter was doing so well. And it wasn't until I had my son raised him exactly the same way that I realized, no, kids are kids. They're who they are. I, I had very, very little to do with, you know, how bright they are. And I don't even that word bright doesn't even mean anything. How well they did in school. Exactly. You know, yeah, and you can't you can't make them. Um, you can't make somebody care about what they're learning, and you can't make somebody mm-hmm. like school. I think my big realization after everything we've been through is what you can do is love your kids and try to provide a safe and nurturing home for them. And beyond that, very little is in your control. That is so terrifying, but I completely agree with you. Yeah. I'm curious what you think, given where you are, you know, and what you do and, you know, all these schools that I don't know if you would say you interface with them, but you know so much about them and just the way our school system is structured and intelligence. I know a lot of kids that are in, what do you call it? The hypes? Oh, the Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford. Yeah, I don't even know how to pronounce it. But apparently, for your reference, Tracy, there was a whole big discussion on Reddit in the applying to college thread about how to pronounce, apparently it's now hypsum or hypsum because MIT got added to it. 
So there were like 60 comments where people were like, well, should MIT really be there? But anyway, do you pronounce it hypsum or hypsum? And I'm like, why? Why are we doing this? Why is this important? Absolutely. So I'm curious. I'm getting to my point. I'm sorry. It's taking me a while to sort of formulate it. But when we talk about intelligence, I feel like because of the school my daughter went to and a lot of her friends went to the hypsum or hypsum or whatever you call it. I don't think these kids are any brighter across the board than, frankly, a child who never even makes it to college because for whatever reason, you know, socioeconomic or, you know, family, all of that stuff, they might not get there. What I have realized, certainly among ADHD women and their children, is that every kid is brilliant at something. And so when, you know, and uh, that whole thing that happened, this big scandal with you oh, know, all these families that were, and I, because of that, I think that we have finally, the, the egg has sort of cracked. It's not quite, there's like a little crack in it, right? But do you think that it really means anything to get into one of those schools from a purely this human is smarter than that human? I think as an objective evaluation of somebody's intelligence, it's absolutely not. It's a reflection, strikingly, of socioeconomic background, access, privilege, and innate or perhaps a combination of innate and cultivated ability to do school well. And there are absolutely brilliant kids who don't do school well and who are not good at time tests, who are not good, like I was not good at having a research project that has multiple steps to it and is due weeks from now and you actually have to methodically work and do the things in order to get your full grade. Um, but they have other phenomenal skills which are not really either being recognized or nurtured in our school system. And to your point that women with ADHD, and I think just people in general who never go to college are, in my experience, some of the brightest, most capable people I know. Actually, one of my closest friends dropped out of college after freshman year, exactly from what you said, a combination of the fact that her parents just flat out refused to not only pay for college, but to pay for anything after she turned 18 and a combination of difficult personal circumstances. And when it came time to choose between working full-time and attending school full-time, which is not sustainable, she chose to work full-time and just retired from a really lucrative corporate job um, making six figures because she is smart and creative and responsible and takes initiative and steps up and has qualities that you can't learn in college. And so a degree yeah. doesn't give you all those things. It doesn't give you integrity. It doesn't give you imagination. It, yes, gives you access to an alumni network, and it might give you a boost into yes. your first job, but likely not your second job and not your third job. Yeah, absolutely. So what I'm curious about is when you start hearing about companies like Google and IBM and Dell and Bank of America, that no longer are requiring college degrees. In fact, I think I read something about a boy who was 15 this last week that just got a job with Google. Yes. And he, he graduated from Santa Clara um, 
from Santa Clara University at 15. Yeah. And he's working. I can't remember what he's working for, but he just got hired as a software engineer. We probably saw the same article. So, but that kid would have had a college degree. Yes. Oh, so maybe, maybe I read it. Maybe I didn't read the article and I did what I, you know, complain other people do. I just read the headline and (laughs) assumed. So, but okay, that boy, notwithstanding, there are plenty of people now who are being hired by these big, you know, companies without college degrees. So what do you think that this is ultimately going to do to college and the whole kind of institution of college, especially given that it just keeps getting more and more expensive? I hope it continues to widen the crack that was opened with Varsity Blues. And I, so I went deep down that rabbit hole just because it was so intimately connected with what I do. And I talk about it a little bit in the book because that story broke when um, my husband and our oldest son and I were in New York City celebrating his graduation from college. And so it obviously hit very close to home. And I went deep, deep down the rabbit hole of who are these parents? What were they trying to do? What were their motivations? And one of the things that really struck me in particular, and not to point fingers, but Lori Laughlin's daughter, who was mm-hmm. actually doing perfectly well without yeah. college. She was an influencer. She was living her best life. Um, And I don't think it was particularly her idea even to go to college, but the milieu in which she grew up. I don't think she wanted to go. I don't think she did either. But I think it was unthinkable for her parents that, you know, she could. And I remember the quote, it was um, when they were talking to Rick Singer, I think one of them said, God forbid she go to the University of Arizona. And I'm like... (laughs) that's a good school or ASU. I can't remember. They're both good schools, you know, and the result was she took a big blow to her brand and nobody wanted to work with her anymore. And it took her a minute to come back from that. And was that someone for whom college was really necessary to be successful? Absolutely not. And so I think when you think about the expense and the angst and the emotional energy that goes into what I think ultimately is projection on the part of parents of college as an equivalent to or a sign of we've arrived. We have done all the right things, raising our children. They are now at Stanford, Harvard, Yale, whatever. Um, we have been validated. They have arrived. It's all good. Like We must be good parents. We must be good parents. Exactly. And so it's a system of winners and losers that I think if you unpack it, okay, so now they're at Stanford. How is their life going to be so much better at Stanford? I know anecdotally several people who actually at Ivy League schools and Stanford had to change their academic pathway from being pre-med because it was to, everybody was incredible. As you pointed Uh out earlier, everybody was in the top 2% of their graduating class in high school, which meant that 50% now we're in the bottom 50%. And that's a very big blow to take when you're an 18 year old and all your grades have to be A's so that you can. And in order to get into those schools, it's not just your grades, it's everything. Exactly. So I can't even imagine you've always been at the top. It's like a professional athlete, right? They've always been at the top. And then they actually go into the professional team and they're among all these people that are equally as good, if not better. 
It's like a shock. Yeah. It's got to be. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's kind of like being, you know, the most valuable player on your cross country team and suddenly ending up at the Olympics. And all of a sudden you're like, who are these people? And why are they all so much faster? And why am I throwing up by the side of the track? Um, And I think that doesn't happen to all students, but it does happen for many of them. And I think that companies announcing that they are no longer requiring college degrees, I think is a way of recognizing that maybe it's worth it to look beyond the resume at what is the person's proven track record? What is their work ethic? Um, Have they worked before? One of my friends who does hiring in tech said that he is actually more likely to hire a San Jose State University grad in engineering than he is to hire a Stanford grad in engineering because many of the San Jose State students work part-time to support themselves. So they come with experience, they come with grit, they come with knowing how to deal with setbacks. And that's not to say that all Stanford students sit in the corner sucking their thumb and demanding gold trophies for whatever they do. But it is an observable fact that people who chose to go to San Jose State, or maybe that was their only option financially, geographically, otherwise, are going to be there because they really, really have a sense of purpose and have something that they want to do and are excelling in that. Yeah. No, I hope it changes because I know I'm sure some of this was going on when I went to college, but I was not aware of it. And I don't think my peers were aware of it either. It's almost like it's the last 20 years where I just don't even, you know, it it seemed to correspond with when colleges started to get more and more expensive. And are there just more, many more kids applying? Is that why it's just gotten so hard to get into a lot of these schools? So that's a great question. I am actually not a sociologist, so I can't speak um, I can't speak fully to this. But what I can tell you, and this kind of tracks with everything I've read and observed, is that in 1983, the U.S. News and World Report, in order to mm-hmm. boost their flagging um, sales, decided to issue a ranking of colleges. Malcolm Gladwell, uh, who is a stone cold genius, has a really great podcast episode called The Lord of the Rankings. And then he also has a um, New Yorker piece called The Order of Things, where he talks about the folly of trying to rank something as complicated and dynamic as a college when, as he points out, it's hard enough to rank cars, right? Like if you look at the 10 best cars, you're immediately having to think about What are you using the car for? Are you going to be hauling lumber? Are you going to be driving in stop and go traffic in Silicon Valley? Are you going to be an Uber driver in a large urban metropolis? And colleges, which lose a quarter of their students every year, gain a quarter of their students every year, have faculty who come and go, um, are obviously much harder to rank except for these very flawed criteria. And so when I applied to college, I think the U.S. News and World Report was just getting off the ground. And so to all the parents who came of age during that time um, and who were like, wow, it was so much easier. All I did was run varsity or, you know, sometimes JV like track. And I was treasurer of my senior class and I got into Harvard because I had straight A's. And, you know, that ship has sailed because, Back in the 80s um, and even in the early 90s, I think people knew Harvard was a good school and Stanford was a good school. I don't think it was a secret, but 
I don't think people visually saw it as a name on top of the rankings that therefore must be desirable. And so I think that it's harder to get into college now because more people are applying to fewer schools rather than, or not fewer schools, but more. So kind of a a more, exactly. So, you know, and that's where I don't think the acronym HYPS existed when I was in high school. I don't know who came up with it. I'm sure the other IVs are very mad um, because they're not in the acronym, right? They're like, where's Brown in this? Where's Cornell? Brown is such a good school. I know. You know, everybody that I know that has gone to Brown, like I would say within the last like 10 years, you know, my, my kids' friends, blah, 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 they rave about that school. My understanding with Brown, you'll tell me if I'm wrong, is that you don't even have to choose a major until when, like senior year or like you can take all. In fact, I don't think they even allow you to choose a major. And that has been my son's biggest gripe is we're paying all this money to go to the school. I cannot even choose the classes I want to take. So if it's in a different um, college, you know, because they have all the different colleges within NYU, for example, if it's in Stern and he's not in Stern, he can't take a class in Stern. And what he's most interested in is business and finance, right? So he's like, this is ridiculous. Right. And so I'm curious, is that how Brown works? Do you know? So Brown actually has um, an open curriculum, which means that they don't have, you. students eventually do choose, um, they call them concentrations, which is basically like a major, but they don't have general ed requirements that most colleges have. So Columbia, for example, is the opposite. Columbia has a core curriculum, which dictates that everybody who graduates from Columbia has to take these classes and read these books, which I'm actually a fan of because college is the last time that anybody is going to make you sit down and read the Odyssey or sit down and read books that you are always going to be slightly ashamed of not having read. Maybe that's just me, but do you know what I mean? Like I read things, well, so I read things in college and actually in grad school when I was a TA where I was like, how did I not read the Odyssey, you know, as an English major when I was an undergrad? And so I had to speed read it before teaching the class. And I was like, this is really good. But you are also an English major. I was an English major. That's true. But I was like, maybe I should have been a classics major. I did not know that was a thing. (laughs) Anyway, so back to your question, Columbia has um, the core requirement where no matter what your major is, you have to take a certain number of classes and read a certain number of common texts, which they essentially believe is the hallmark of an educated citizen of a democratic society, which that they're not wrong. Brown, on the other hand, says you don't have to take anything. If you would like to come in and not ever take math again, you don't have to. If you would like to come in and never take English literature again, you don't have to. Um, and so it gives students a lot of latitude to explore I have my own philosophical feelings about that, but obviously, yes, it is a great school and there is no reason it shouldn't be in an acronym, but really there's no reason there should be an acronym. And so, exactly, yeah. Okay. So, Irina, you are so brave because what you did with this book, wait, sorry, (laughs) I got too much crap on my desk. That's my desk. Is that you basically showed this community of achievers, you know, who value what you have since come to realize really isn't something that should be valued, the truth. And I'm curious, 
how that resonated with them. You know, you were basically showing that, yes, this is what I do for a living. This is what I'm helping you to help your kids, you know, get. But it's not what works for my family. And so I'm curious what the reception was among the Palo Alto elite and your your clients and all of this. Right. I So I have, and I make this pretty clear in the book, I have a lot of ambivalence about what I do because in effect, I participate in a very broken system. I try to be a good actor in a very broken system, but it's still a very broken system. And I do think that people like me bear some of the complicity for sort of shoring it up. On the other hand, if I didn't do it, there are plenty of people who would be delighted to meet with somebody seventh grader once a week as a parent once asked me if that was a thing that I would do. Um, And I was like, what on earth would I talk to your 12-year-old or 11-year-old about? The only person that that kid should be meeting with weekly is maybe a therapist and only if they have some really serious stuff to talk about. Not a college counselor. No, thank you. Actually, you, the parent, should meet with the therapist. Exactly. Yeah, maybe that would be more appropriate to deal (laughs) with the underlying anxiety that is leading you to pose these questions to me. So I knew that it was a risk to put it all out there. But I also felt like there was an underlayer of unhappiness and anxiety and anguish, even in the parents, and maybe especially in the parents who look like they have their lives most together. And it gave me, writing the book and just even doing this work, gave me a lot of compassion for pretty much everyone I come in contact with, including parents where I initially rolled my eyes and went, oh my God, what is wrong with you? And there's a scene in the book where I describe a parent sitting in a chair in my office saying, oh my God, all the other parents at my kid's school are insane. And then Three days later, a different parent from that school would sit in the exact same chair and say, oh, my God, everybody at my kids. And it's like, you're all insane. But, you know, the the fact is we're all insane. I think to a certain extent out of love. Systems insane. Exactly. But out of love and out of anxiety and living with this insane system, we all do things that are questionable. You know, we didn't push our kids to be competitive for the Ivies, but we certainly pushed our older son in other ways. And we've had long, long conversations about this, and he's very appreciative of it because he says that it gave him a choice as far as how he wanted to show up in the world. But I have a lot of doubt and ambivalence still about that. And so one of the reasons I wanted to tell the story is I've also been a college counselor for 16, um, actually going on 17 years. So I've been slowly trying to extricate myself from that. And I figured if I burn all my bridges, I will just retire faster and then segue more into writing and more into advocating for people to take a different, saner approach to success in college application. But the incredible thing is I have heard from many of both my current and former parents who came to the book with an extraordinary amount of compassion and grace, and in some cases, who were pleasantly surprised. I had a mom who told me that she was afraid to read it because she thought it would be basically a send-up of her and other crazy Palo Alto parents because they're such an easy target, right? Like, you can practically see the sitcom. And 
she said instead it just totally blew me away because it wasn't about that. It was about how hard parenting is for everybody. It was about second guessing. It was about doubting. And then my other thing was I really wanted my kid's story and our family's story to be out there because it's not a story that people share. The stories that people share on social media and at Whole Foods or Trader Joe's are, my kid is doing this really prestigious summer program and we're so busy because from that summer program, we're doing a community service thing in Costa Rica and then we're doing this other thing coming back and then they have all these APs. And I mean, it's hard to come up to somebody and in answer to the question of how are you to say, well, actually, we just sent our son to wilderness in a great deal of crisis, but I'm not sure why we shouldn't normalize that. I am also wondering, too, Irina, if by writing this book, you haven't attracted, frankly, saner parents who you'd rather work with them and their kids anyway. That is my hope. And I think that the people who resonated with the book, and I've also been hearing from parents of rising seniors who are like, oh, thank you for reminding me of what's important. So not parents that I'm working with, but parents who I actually hope end up not working with me or not working with another college counselor and recognizing that pushing their kid to punch above their weight in terms of applying to college is not necessarily a healthy thing. Maybe just the goal is the kid graduates from high school with health and sanity intact. There's a lot of time to figure out what to do. Yeah. So I would love to know what each of your kids has taught you. And if you would tell us how old they are now too. What a really great question. I have not actually thought of a way to put this into words, so forgive me if I get a little stumbly, but I think our oldest son, who is 28 now, taught me very profoundly what it means to be a human in the world. So what makes us human? And by breaking that down into really small pieces. So the behavioral intervention that we did with him essentially involves taking tasks that kids with PDD on OS, um, pervasive developmental disorder um, and autism don't readily pick up just from the environment. So it really requires you to imagine from their standpoint, what is hard? What are they not getting? And breaking it down into really small incremental pieces. And as somebody who was an early talker, who did not have speech delays in Russian, and who after struggling with English for probably less than a year became pretty fluent. Like I remember measuring it as, okay, now I can talk fluently, but people are still picking up on my accent. And then within two years, nobody was picking up Um, on my accent. And I was like, I have arrived. And so for me, who sort of learned language out of whole cloth twice to understand how differently somebody else could appreciate and absorb language was a really, really profound experience. So I think that's my oldest. My middle son, who is 25, taught me how to be in the moment more and why it's important to be more positive and more silly and more affable. He is by far the most affable of three of our children. And I'm not saying the other two are, you know, spiky and evil, 
but he's just, he's super easygoing. And he's also, um, and I love this about him because I'm actually more like him than the other two. So I used to joke when all three of them were little that our oldest um, son and our youngest daughter, if they had seen a staircase, they would both hurdle themselves down the staircase head first. Uh, our middle son would, holding onto the banister with both hands, walk down one step at a time, one foot, then the other, next step, one foot, and the other. And I was like, oh my God, I am seeing that, you know, just kind of thoughtfulness and caution and common sense reflected in him. And he's really funny. He's up for everything. Um, he's very fun to play board games with. So he taught me, I think, a softer approach to life. Um, and then my daughter, I don't even know where to start. She turned 22 recently. Um, she has an incredibly associative mind. And I feel like I do too. Like I'm fairly good at putting things together that I wouldn't necessarily or other people wouldn't necessarily see as intuitively coming together. But she, ADHD. Right, exactly. But she is like next level at that. And she's not even trying. Like she will just say things and then, she, you know, everybody will laugh and she'll be like, was that funny? I, whatever, I just said a thing. And so that kind of just spontaneity and saying the thing I love and I'm really trying to emulate. And also her just total willingness that I have absolutely taken on to go down deep, deep rabbit holes. Like we watched White Lotus 2 together and he was, first of all, she had super interesting things to say about it. And she caught things that- I can't believe you watched that after like, you know, reading in this book. I mean, you're such an avid reader, yeah. right? Oh no. <laughs> Very I, high level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that White Lotus. feel better. But White Lotus 2 is so, I mean, that's like amazing storytelling. If you think yeah. about it, it's right. And then we also amazing. watched Bad Sisters and she noticed. I don't know again, what that is. I'm to write it down. Oh, it's so good. It's the most criminally underrated show. And I'm not going to tell you anything since you haven't watched it. Don't let anybody tell you anything about it. But there's a very, just watch like the opening sequence and you'll be hooked. But there's a very subtle detail that I completely missed in the opening sequence. And she was immediately like, oh, there's this thing. So I'm also trying to pay more attention be kind of more, I'm going to say this thing that I think is true. So they've all taught me some really, really profound things. So your daughter sounds um, like she has no problem just being herself. She's working on it. Um, it took a minute. I think that growing up in Palo Alto was tough for her especially. And I think for a long time, she struggled with trying to figure out how to be someone that she wasn't. And I think that took a really big toll on her, especially because as is the case with a lot of ADHD girls, she was a total rock star in elementary school. She was an early reader. She was and continues to be an amazing writer. And then in middle school, when school gets more deliverable oriented, she started struggling and that just took a huge chunk out of her self-esteem. And she is coming back to being authentically herself, which is such a pleasure to see. And that's another thing that I'm, I'm trying to take out of her playbook is it's never too late. It is not. Certainly not for an ADHD brain, that's exactly. for sure. So what would you do differently 
if you had the opportunity to start again? From which point? As a parent. Wow, that is a question I've wrestled with a lot. Um, I think that my knee-jerk reaction would be to say, get the kids the hell out of Palo Alto. But then I have to second-guess that immediately because my husband and I would have probably not been happy living you know, somewhere rural without a community of well-educated, interesting people. So, you know, if we had stayed in Palo Alto, I think that I would have been much more vocal at school with my two younger kids. Jordan, our oldest, actually had a lot of support throughout school because he had an IEP, an individualized education plan. So he was one of the kids on the other side of the divide. So there are all the AP high achieving kids who get a lot of attention and support. And then there are the kids who really have documented needs and issues that are addressed through the IEP. And then there's everybody in the middle, which were my middle and um, younger children. And I think I would have been much more vocal about working with the school and pointing out that they were not getting what they needed. And I don't know that the school was able to provide what they needed, but I think that we just somewhat foolishly took it on faith that, you know, they got this. It's a good school. They have guidance counselors. They have teacher advisors. People are keeping an eye on them. And in retrospect, that was not a great assumption. And it ended up not resulting in a really successful school experience for both of them. One thing that I absolutely would have done differently in the case of our middle son is just kind of blithely assume that everybody goes to college after high school. Um, And because he is so affable, he was like, sure, I'll go to college. And after about a year, that ended up not being a thing anymore. And so I think just being more open-minded, which was hard because everybody in our family went to college. My husband and I have advanced degrees. Our oldest son went to college right after high school. Doesn't everybody go to college? No, not everybody. And assuming that is not a great idea. Yeah. I think as bad as social media can be, what I noticed certainly with my son is he has so many role models that are in social media who've gone out and blazed these trails on their own. Exactly. And we didn't have that, right? We thought the only way was college. And so I feel so badly for those people in my generation and, you know, generations after that felt like, well, you know, if you don't go to college, you know, life's over. Exactly. You're a failure. Yeah. Such BS. And I think it's part of the reason why there's so few people in trades today. Exactly. You know, and I remember seeing a statistic about the trades and um, construction and how people in construction have the highest job satisfaction because they tend to be outdoors. There's a beginning, middle, and an end to a project. They're creating, they're building, so they get satisfaction. I'm trying to remember, they usually can control their own time. And, oh my gosh, they charge so much, so they make a really good living because so few people are doing it anymore. And I think some of us are just meant to work with our hands and, you know. Exactly. And to try to fit everybody through this very narrow tunnel of what it means to be successful is doing such a disservice to ourselves and our kids because not everybody 
wants to go to college, not everybody wants to go to college immediately after high school, especially if high school is grueling and stressful and difficult. And I think just having more options on the table and being more curious about our kids and what they want. I think that's probably the thing that I would have for sure changed with all of my kids is I would have talked less and listened more. And I think that it's really, really difficult when you are in an advice-giving profession to not operate from a place of, I have all this wisdom. People pay me for this wisdom. And, you know, of course, your own kids are like, I want nothing to do with it, you know? And so for a very long time, I operated from a place of, if only I could say the right thing and convince them of whatever. Um, And it took me a minute to realize that is not how anything works. So you absolutely do not believe that you are smarter if you went to college than someone who did not go to college. Absolutely. I mean, and again, if you look at, you know, the role models in social media, yes. But if you look at people who are, by all measures, at least financially successful, some of them did not go to college that you've heard of. Um, Some of them, like Steve Jobs, dropped out of Reed after one semester. Some of them, like Michael Dell, dropped out of UT Austin after, I think, a year. And so that obviously did not get in their way that they did not go to or did not finish college. I think it's really who you are at your core is going to determine what you do with your life. Yeah. So what can parents do to reduce the pressure on their children during this fraught-ridden college application process? I've been through it twice now. I am so glad you asked that because I think that there are very measurable ways in which parents can both reduce the pressure on their children, but also on themselves. I'm actually noodling around with the idea for that as my next book is not yet another college guide, but a guide for parents of how to essentially maintain a speaking relationship with their child as their child (laughs) goes through high school. And I think that the first thing that parents can do is take college off the table as a point of discussion. For some reason, many adults think that the most entertaining and appropriate question they can ask a young person like at a party or at a social event is, so where are you applying to school? Um, Not a single teenager I know enjoys being asked that question. Um, One of the things I suggest to my students is if you're ever confronted with that question, just kind of sidestep and say, you know, I haven't really decided yet. Where did you go to school? Tell me all about that. And then you end up actually learning something from a person who's already gone to college. And it may have been a terrible experience or it may have been a great experience, but you can ask them all kinds of things. Like, why did you decide on that place? Why did you not choose some other place? And do you have regrets? It's always such a good idea to ask people if they have regrets because Often they will, and they will tell you all about it. And so I think that for parents, instead of putting it out there as this enormous milestone that their child is going to have to tackle, instead of asking about college or bringing up college, I think they could just hang out in the general vicinity 
and see what their kid wants to talk about. If their kid would like to talk about college and they have questions, great. If they don't, please trust and believe that they are surrounded by people talking about college in the rest of their life. Their friends are talking about it on social media. They're talking about it at school. They're worrying about it in the classroom. Very likely they're having advisory or homeroom or whatever in school where they're talking about it. I don't think it's helpful to add to that, but I do think it's helpful to start maybe just very innocuous conversations about family history. For example, what were the parents' experiences? What were their grandparents' experiences? It can really help students understand where they come from and contextualize where they are without it culminating in, okay, and now you have to do this thing that we did. So tell them about yourself. They may not know a whole lot of family history. Um, Talk about your family values. If you're a religious family, how did that come to be? And why is that? And what do you believe? If you're not a religious family, what are your values? What do you hold sacred? You know, what holidays do you celebrate? What milestones do you have in your life? If your kid is willing to do like a family book club, you know, have them suggest a book that you can all read and talk about. Do not ask to see their college essays unless they show them to you, because I cannot tell you the incalculable amount of damage that has been done by parents who are like, oh, that's not a very good essay, or that's not a very good topic, or who email me having read a first draft going, oh my God, this is terrible. And I'm like, it's a first draft. Like, why are you in there? So one thing that I've thought of that might be fun for families having just been through this exercise myself is instead of hounding your kid about their college essay, look at the prompts and write your own and actually stick to the word count. I didn't do that because it was too hard, but you can try and then you'll get a sense of what would you as an adult answer to this question of describe the world you come from, your family, your community, or your school. How has that world shaped your dreams and aspirations? It may be you know, write two essays, write the one you might've written in college or for college and write the one now, Um, you know, what's different. I think that could be a much better exercise for parents than um, stalking their kids and micromanaging the college application process. Absolutely. You know, I was thinking, I loved how you organized the book based on these questions from different schools. And I was thinking, I would love to see a college application. With those answers in it. Um, they were so good the whole time I'm thinking, oh my gosh, if, you know, if I had written those or exactly. my kids had written those. Yeah. But there were a lot of experiences, right, that you had that you were able to put in those and probably experiences a teenager is not going to have already had. I mean, it's interesting how, you know, after decades, we amass a lot of wisdom. Exactly. Yeah. And the irony of that is we do. We amass a lot of wisdom. And then we have a new generation of young people who want absolutely nothing to do with it. They're just like, screw you. I'm going to make my own mistakes. Right. And then that's going to happen to their children. And that has been happening since time immemorial. True. You know what I forgot to ask you? Once you were diagnosed, so it hasn't been that long. It's only been, what, six or so months, seven months, eight months. What changed? I think I became more open about 
why I am the way I am. And so now instead of being like, oh my God, I'm so sorry, I'm late, I'm a terrible person, I'm like working on my time blindness, which is a symptom of ADHD. I don't mean to use that as an excuse, but um, one of, I, I had a really, but I think it is, you know, it's an, it's an explanation that people go, okay, you're not doing this out of malice or disrespect yes. to me, which I think goes a long way. But I had a really fantastic experience in the last reading that I did at Book Passage in San Francisco, where during the Q&A, somebody was asking me about my writing process. And I said, ha, 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 writing process, which is, you know, essentially writing things on scraps of paper, losing them, not writing for weeks, feeling guilty, essentially horribly disorganized. And I brought up that I had recently been diagnosed with ADHD. And it was so funny because the the shift in the room, there were like 30 people there and I knew some of them, I didn't know others, was really palpable. And people were all of a sudden like, oh, oh, we need to weigh this information. Like, what does that mean? And um, I had at least five or six people come up to me afterward who were like, okay, first of all, you seem so together. I had no idea. And or who were like, I think I have it too. Because, right? And it's like one of those things where suddenly you see yourself and you're like, oh, I do all those things. And I didn't realize it was treatable. I think medication helps. Because I kind of feel like, okay, I've taken this thing and I have a finite amount of time, like almost as a deadline, you know, to be productive. And so I think that has helped. And it's also helped me just be more self-aware and to understand why certain things are hard and to try to get better about not just relying on the medication, but also putting systems in place that will help me function in a way where I don't constantly hate myself and have piles of things all over the house. Yeah. Was medication easy for you in terms of, you know, you were given one of the top two stimulants and it just worked right away? Or did you have to go through a process to figure out what worked? So the process was actually pretty straightforward. Um, and I was lucky that I did not get put on whatever was in short supply right when I was diagnosed. Yeah, it was Adderall. Um, they put me on Ritalin and I, the immediate release um, Ritalin, I mean, you could feel it working. It's like all of a sudden you're like, oh, my brain is working. I'm not blurting and interrupting people. Like all these things are, you know, I just cleaned up the breakfast bar and nobody yelled at me about how disgusting it was. I just did it. So it was lucky that it worked. My um, psychiatrist tried an extended release. And for whatever reason, the extended release was like worse than bad. Like for some reason, it just made me fuzzy headed um, for the entire day. And I was like, you know what? Let's just go back to the immediate release and take it twice a day and not deal with, I don't know what that was, but um, it was not successful. So interesting. The same medication, but it was so different mm-hmm. depending on if it was immediate or extended. I've not heard that yeah, before. Yeah, I, I don't know why, but. I had, um, our listeners know this because I've said it a million times, but Ritalin, I took it one time and it was like the sky opened up. I could think I was supposed to give a speech and I kept forgetting the speech and I had been practicing and practicing. I drove home in my car and I went through it five times cold. And I was so excited, and then it never worked again. <gasps> oh, no. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so what did you I know end I've up? I it in there somewhere. Yeah. You know, that is so frustrating. We actually had that, and medication is just so weird in general. This has nothing to do with ADHD, but um, when our son was in elementary school, we went to see a pediatric psychiatrist who suggested, now I can't remember what the medication was, but all I remember is we didn't tell our son's teachers. He said, don't tell them, see if they notice a difference. And he was a tough kid and he was disruptive. He was disinhibited socially. He just, he had a hard time in school and he took it. And within like six hours, we were like, what is happening? Like he was socially attuned. He was calm. He was not, it wasn't like he was sedated or robotic. He was just a clear headed on top of it, delightful easy to be with person. And by Tuesday of that week, all his teachers were like, uh, what did you do with Jordan? We were like, surprise. So it lasted for a week and we were like, wow, we, you know, this is amazing. We're a scientific, you know, breakthrough. I hate to use the word cured about anything, but he's like a different, he was happier. He was like connected. He was, you know, it was like flowers for Algernon. I mean, he didn't, you know, go down, but it like within a week and it literally was like a light switch. Like it was great. And then one day he woke up and took the medication and we were right back to where we were eight days before. Although I would think that that was still good news, not as good as it could be, obviously, because you saw who he really was, right? Yeah. And this wasn't something that was purposeful again, right? So hopefully it gave you more compassion. It absolutely did. And I think that's that's the other thing that I've learned. We were talking about age and wisdom, that everybody is really trying to do their level best in the world. I don't think that, mo- I mean, there, there are people who don't, but for the most part, nobody is in the world to either screw up their kids as parents or as kids to make their parents' lives miserable, to inconvenience them, to, you know, everybody is at the end of the day, to be cliche, just walking each other home. And I think that sense of compassion that, you know, this is their best um, has really helped me engage with not just my own children, but also the parents that I work with and the students that I work with, where this is what they know how to do. It doesn't mean they're bad people. It means that they are responding to something, two-thirds of which I probably don't even know. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So, Irina, what do you think the key to living successfully with ADHD is? I think having a surrounding community of people who understand and forgive you for your various idiosyncrasies and quirks Understanding yourself and knowing what your limitations are, but also being willing to push past those limitations. And, you know, if you need to take your shoes off every once in a while under your chair and secretly hide your bare feet, then do that. Or move to Hawaii. Or exactly where it's normal to be barefoot. Exactly. So do you have a number one ADHD workaround? Either creating a deadline, which doesn't work as well, or, you know, getting a deadline that is not negotiable. Um, I don't know if that's really a workaround, but that and timers, I guess, because then there's that built-in sense of something's going to buzz at me. Do you use this one? The Datex one? No. 
Oh my God, this is the best thing. Okay. Okay. So, and I don't know why my brain hasn't figured out I'm lying to it, but I'm talking to it and it still hasn't figured it out. When I am struggling to start, I use this and the deal I strike with myself is all you have to do is 25 minutes. If you want to quit after 25 minutes, you may quit. The beauty of this is you don't have to go on your phone. You don't have to find something. There's no app. So look at this. Oh, I love that. And so it starts counting down. When 25 minutes is up, it beeps. Do you know in the years that I've been doing this, not one time have I quit after 25 minutes. I'm usually in for hours because it's the starting, it's right? Starting. That is so difficult. Yep. So I, I swear by this and so many of you know our students and our followers and they just love this. Thing. I love that. And I love too that you don't have to go on your phone to set anything because when you go on your phone is a little bit of a few give a mouse a cookie situation. Right. Exactly. And I like this one because it's bamboo. So it's, you know, visually fairly appealing. Yes, no, it's lovely. And so it sits on my desk. I don't have to, you know, rifle around. It's just there. And so when I'm struggling to start, I see it and I'm like, oh, I forgot about that. I love I that. That is a great yeah. idea. Okay. As soon as we end, I am getting it's it's Datex. Yeah, I, sh I should get money from them, right? Really I'm constantly talking. I mean, that was a completely irresistible pitch. And also, I really do need it. Yeah. So, Irina, where can people find your book? They can find it at all the bookish places. So on Amazon, um, it's called The Golden Ticket, A Life in College Admissions Essays at your local independent bookstore. If they're not carrying it, ask them to. You can get it online at bookshop.org or you could get it at your local library. And again, if they aren't carrying it, go up to the circulation desk and demand that they do. You should. It's so good. So is there some place that listeners can go if they want to reach out to you or learn more about you and what you do? Absolutely. So they can go to my author website, which is irenasmith.com, I-R-E-N-A-S-M-I-T-H.com. And it has other writing that I've done. Um, it has my bio. It has information about the book and upcoming events. And they can get all that information and more right there. Wonderful. We're going to put that in the show notes. Thank you so much for spending time with us here today. I knew this one was going to be fun and we've gone way over. Tracy, I didn't even notice the time go by. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. No, absolutely. It was all my pleasure. So that's what I have for you for this week. If you like this episode with Irina, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too may discover their amazing strengths. Before I go, don't forget to check out my live coaching program, Your ADHD Brain is A-OK. -okay. There's also a private community and you can find out more information at spyhappy.me forward slash A-OK. -okay. And if you sign up now with the code podcastsass, you'll get $500 off just for being a podcast listener. As always, you're listening to ADHD for Smartass Women. Thank you so much for listening and I will see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Outsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. 
Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smartass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyoutsuka.com, where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.